Jacob, who's called Israel, took his family to Egypt. There are 66 of them. And they went down and they met Joseph's family. There are four of them. So 70 people, 70 people began one of the most amazing stories in history. Never had there been a, a, a people like people of Israel. And um, they went down into Egypt, but they never called it home. It's a different culture, different language, different food, different gods, uh, just a myriad of gods. And they knew one god, the, the god. And uh, they're down there. They're, they're shepherds, and that's an abomination. Uh, we'll talk more about abomination tonight, but that means they, they stink to the people because they're, they're shepherds. They look after sheep, and that was an abomination to the Egyptians. And so the Egyptians gave them their own land, their own little part of the delta uh, for the River Nile and said, you guys stay out there. And they weren't out there very long until they multiplied, and they multiplied into the millions, starting from 70 people into millions of people. Uh, I've been to some of the biggest and worst slums in the world on just about every continent. And one of the things that they have in common is no one ever plans to live in a slum. So there's no infrastructure, no sidewalks, no roads, no signs, no sewage. It's just a teetering tenement tacked onto another teetering tenement. It's just ruts to show you where to walk, whether it's Haiti or whether it's uh, in Africa or India. Uh, even Portugal has a slum. Uh, they're just, they're not meant to be lived in. And so the children of Israel lived in Egypt 400 years. When you think about how old America, I mean, uh, 400 years is a long time. And they had already been told by the Lord through Abraham and through Jacob and Isaac and Jacob that they would have a land of their own. So they never planned to stay. Even, even Joseph said, hey, when you guys leave town, take my bones with you. I want to go with you. He had a belief that there was a land, a promised land. And so they never planned to stay. Plus, plus you're working all the time. Eventually, something switched very gradually as other kings came along and other generations came. They became slaves of the Egyptians. And everything that was built in stone, permanent, was being built by the slaves. Them, the children of Israel, everything that they built was made out of mud and palm branches and bamboo. They weren't expecting to stay. And even today, when they try to locate where the children of Israel were, where would two, two million people live, they can't find anything because I think it was just made out of mud, made out of palm branches, stuff that doesn't last. But the stuff that did last, the stuff that they're unearthing, the stuff that they, they, they buried, I mean, uh, God said that he was going to destroy Egypt, and he did, and... and um, all the permanent stuff got destroyed, but I mean, they're still unearthing it constantly. And, um, but the children of Israel never planned to stay. They expected to leave. Imagine working all day and, and uh, under the sound of the whip, being threatened by a whip. While at home, you just get home, you do a little barbecue and then fall in the, uh, in the haystack or uh, on, on some temporary bed and and go to sleep and get up the next morning and just go back at it. And that's what the children of Israel did. 
and there were, there's nothing permanent. And after a while, the slum mentality of, of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you throw your trash on the, out on the, on the sidewalk. It doesn't matter because it's not ours. We're not here. This isn't our home. And um, uh, then God intervened, and God came to them and sent Moses and said, come on, let's get out of here. And they marched, and they went out with everything that they had, and they went out into a place where there was nothing. Nothing grows. There's no supermarkets. There's, uh, there's no fields of rice or wheat. or not. It's a barren land. And God took them out where there was nothing to get Egypt out of them and to get that slum mentality out of them. He had to get the mud out of their lungs, so to speak. And what he did is so profound is, is he, he presented himself as a mighty king and he began laying down a law, a rule of, li a rule of life, how to live. And he says, now, I'm different. I'm different than any of the gods of Egypt. I'm different. You're going to be different. You're going to be my people. If you're going to be my people, you're going to be different. That's the word holy. And so he said, from now on, from now on, you can't just go to the bathroom anywhere you want to go. That's what was happening. And when I go to the slums, and uh, uh, oftentimes in India, you just see people just go to the bathroom everywhere. I mean, you just have to walk. You have to watch every step you take when you're in the cities because people just go to the bathroom wherever they are. And that's what was happening. In fact, years later, during the Revolutionary War, more soldiers, you know, 100,000 soldiers would gather outside of Boston, and more, more Americans died from dysentery from, from where they didn't, they didn't bury their dung, and because of that, it got tracked into their, in their foods and their water supply. Next thing you know, more soldiers died from dysentery than from British bullets. And God said to my people, this is not going to be true of you. You're not going to live this way. In fact, if you throw trash around, you just litter, I won't walk among you. It was powerful. He said, I'm going to teach you how to take a bath. When you, you're going to come before me in three days, take a bath. Wash your clothing. Make sure your clothes are washed before you come. That's where the whole idea of Sunday best came from, is people said, well, I'm going to present myself before God. I'm going to wear my best clothing. Take a bath Saturday night for church on Sunday. That's what a lot of people did for generations in this country. And it was out of that reverence for God that he's different. And, and um, he had laws for how to reconcile. He said, if you borrow someone's axe and you break it, here's what you do. To keep them from fighting and keep them from dividing. He said, this is how you treat your children. This is how I want your children to be raised. This is how I want you to treat your, your wife. Uh, no one had any thought about treating your wife in a special way. Well, there were laws for how you're going to treat her with justice and and with respect. I mean, there are laws for everything, every part of life. He says, this is how you're going to eat. This is uh, my dietary plan. For we, You're going to come into a land of your own, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where the, the gardens are already in the ground, the, the vines are already laid, the olive plants are already happened, date trees, iron ore, gold, houses, stone houses, sturdy houses, all waiting for you. But there's no way that I'm, in, I'm adding my words to it. There's no way I'm going to take you in there with your slum mentality. You'll just wreck it. You'll just trash the place. 
So he used the wilderness to get, a, a, using his word, a transformation of, of every part of their being. He changed their minds, their motives, their view of money, their view of marriage. Everything got touched. It was powerful. He's a God of order. And when you meet him, one of the most amazing things that will happen to you is you'll find out that he, he loves order. There's peace in order. There's freedom in order. When things are put in their place and things are tidy, you just feel better. Your house feels better. You feel better about your car. But if the back seat's just loaded with McDonald's wrappers and Burger King extra sauces all back there, bacon in the sun, you won't feel good at a core, at a heart level. And so he wanted to work with them, and he began to layer by layer, day by day, year by year, transforming them from a, a slum-dwelling people into one of the most beautiful, mighty people that ever existed. No, no other nation. They were different from every other nation. In fact, there was one nation where they saw this mass migration. If you can imagine millions of people moving from one place to another. It's never happened before. It's never happened in the history of the world. It never happened before that. When they saw millions of people migrating from one place to another, it was shocking. They said, they're like locusts. They were, they're just going to eat everything in their path. All the rice fields, their grain fields are going to be eaten. Every stream and river they come to is just going to be dried up. They're going to consume it. Well, that never happened. But that was their fear. That was their dread because they'd never seen anything like this before. And there's this powerful picture where one king was so intimidated by them. He, he uh, got a, a prophet named Balaam and said, I want you to curse these people. I want you to damn them. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to pay you whatever you want, but all, I just want you to bring down a, a damnation on them. I want you to curse them, bring them to nothing. And... Uh, when every time he went to get something from the Lord, the Lord said, no, I want you to bless these people. It was, a, it was a real dilemma for him. They went higher. They wanted to see what this vast array of people would look like. And, and what God had set up through Moses is he said, from now on, everyone's going to camp by your tribe. You're going to get a flag, a banner for your tribe. And wherever that banner is, that's, that's your go-to spot. That's where you're to congregate. And, and he ordered leadership. He had leaders of hundreds, leaders of thousands. He had, he had leaders of tribes. Whether Egypt, they had kind of a tribal elder, kind of a, the oldest guy among them was kind of like the leader. And God set this thing up with Moses. No, we need, we need leaders with a certain kind of heart and leaders with the Holy Spirit upon them and created a whole new kind of leadership and set that all in motion. And in the center, they never had worship before. They didn't know the Lord. Grandpa Abraham knew the Lord and Jacob had experiences when he became Isaac or when he became Israel and Isaac had experiences, but they didn't know the Lord. They had the same common language, the same roots, same circumcision, but that's it. They didn't know God. In the wilderness, they began to know God's heart. And the Christian life is compared to the journey of Israel. 
It's perfect. It's a perfect match. In fact, the children of Israel, Stephen, when he was preaching about it, he said they're the church in the wilderness. They have leadership. They have order. They have, they have laws. They have uh, expectations that God has put upon them, a, a way to live, a way to treat each other. It's all perfect. Well, they didn't have worship, so when these two guys, Balaam and the king, got up on top of the mountain, the first thing they see is right in the center of everything is church. Right in the center of everything is the, is the tabernacle where offering takes place. And then like spokes on a wheel going out from there, each tribe in their colors, each tribe in their tents, and the tents were clean, and the children were clean, they had clean faces, and there was order, and it was peaceable. And when they got up, it took their breath away. They're at the River Jordan. They've just spent 40 years in the wilderness. So they went from slum mentality to the River of Jordan. They're about to cross in the Promised Land. What a transformation. Here's, here's what they saw. Here's what they, what they said. This is Numbers uh, 24, verses 5 to 7. Listen to this. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. You shall pour out water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than a gag, a gag being the highest king. Well, his king is higher, and his kingdom shall be exalted. And that's what happened. God became their king, and next thing you know, their lives started to make sense. Their lives had uh, symmetry. Their lives were, had order, had cleanliness. Their lives began to work the way it was designed by God. And with these guys, they get up on a mountain, and I'll, I'll say it the way I would say it today. Here's what they, they looked out, and they said, man, that's, that's more beautiful than an Amish garden. <laughs> I mean, is there anything more beautiful than an Amish garden? And that's what they saw. They said, oh, they're, like a, they're, like a, they're stretched out like a garden beside the river, tall and beautiful and symmetrical, and gardens that make sense. That's what they saw. Well, that's a testament to their king. Their king who started making sense of their life. He did that for me. When I first met him, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. It was a good home, good people. But we weren't, we weren't Christians. We didn't live like Christians. And I was a, as a young teenager, uh, uh, you know, from the time I was a kid, we all smoked. I mean, we, we didn't know anyone who didn't smoke. We got cigarettes for our, our allowance. And we could smoke at home. We didn't care. You know, there were kids who smoked in the schoolyard in secret. We didn't care about that because we could just smoke all the time. It, we weren't tempted by that. So if you can picture, we, I hitchhiked everywhere, just even as a kid. And so you have a, you have a denim jacket, you have a t-shirt or a denim shirt, denim blue jeans, bell bottoms, and you didn't take them into a tailor and cuff them up. You just walked them off. <laughs> he had this, behind you, you just dragging denim. And we smoked and we hitchhiked and we'd party and we'd be up all, be for a week in the same set of clothing. 
the faster it wore out and you could patch it, the better it was. It just looked cool to us. Well, I'd go back. I'd hitchhike back to my, my uncle and aunt, who I loved, and they were Christians. He was a pastor. And I, and I never got it. It wasn't until after I met the Lord, and it was years later, I laughed out loud when it occurred to me. I'd hitchhike back to see them, and she couldn't, she couldn't wait to get me out of those denims and get me in the shower and get me a cup of tea and sit down. And, and, and it never occurred to me how badly I stunk. Of, of wearing the same clothes every day and sleeping in them and camping in them and hitchhiking in them. And, and, and she, I just thought she was just so nice that she just wanted to wash my clothing. And I just stunk up the house. When I met the Lord, just all that changed. There's a, a transformation as I exposed my heart to the Word of God. It changed Every part of my life brought order and balance, and digni he dignified my life. My whole view of money changed. My whole view of marriage changed. My whole view, I didn't come with this. It came by exposing my heart to the word of God. He did in me what he did in the children of Israel by bringing them out of Egypt and transforming. I went through three years of wilderness where he, he just was touching every area of my life. And it's not a one-time thing. He's done it again even recently, touching areas of my life. He, the wilderness, the Christian life, we used to think of it as, as an oasis with little, bit, little patches of wilderness from time to time. I think the Christian life is more like one big wilderness with a few patches of oasis. He's transforming us here and now for a place, a promised land. He wants us to be different. He wants us to live differently, think differently. He wants us to relate to each other differently. He wants to treat our wives differently, our husbands differently. Everything, everything about them is different. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, he said, let every soul be subject to governing authorities. Now, he's writing, he's writing to pagans who've been converted, and the government was broken. The government was, was hideous at this period of time. Even though it was Roman, it was really a, a corrupt, corrupt government. But he says to these Christians, he says, I, I want you to be subject to governing authorities, and for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, not necessarily the personality of the person, but the concept, the system. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God. And that's talking about the order of things that he's put into place. And whoever resists shall bring judgment upon themselves. He was writing this to people who uh, first-generation Christians were coming out of paganism, where they had all kinds of gods and uh, terrible uncleanness. And it's all mixed with a perverted sexuality. Their worship was, was, was mixed with all kinds of... Uh, sexual rights, and it was horrible. And, and he described them, and he said, you know, you're coming out of all kinds of stuff. So he has to write to them how to live, how to relate, how to function. And he says, you know, it, authority and, and how you relate to authority is really important to you coming under the order of God, the ordinance of God. Right now, America's a mess, and our government's a mess. I mean, it's, I, there's only a couple, couple uh, governors who, who even make sense. 
I mean, it's just a mess. A, guy, a gal got raped on a subway out of Philadelphia last week, got raped, and nobody stepped up to do anything. They raped her in broad daylight on a subway, and all these people did was film it with their phones. And it's getting worse, and that's, that's mild, and I don't mean to shock you. I mean, that's, mild. that's just on the headline. That's on the surface of the headlines. I think what's going to happen is you're going to shine brighter and brighter by coming into more order and how we treat each other and our respect for God and his word, how we relate, how our lives will make sense. Our lives will be peaceable in contrast to the parts of the country that are just going to be absolutely wastelands. And they are now. They're becoming that now. I've been to some of these places. I've walked in some of these places where people are just camping out on the streets for miles harassing harassing us, following us. And uh, it's very, very real. But I think our finest hour is going to come yet where we're going to shine in contrast, shine in comparison. Everything has order. Everything God has established has order. He's a God of order. I've heard people say, well, why do you have to be up there in charge of the meeting? Why do you have to be the pastor? Why don't you just let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do? Let's have meetings where the Holy Spirit just does whatever he wants to do. Well, because I know he's a God of order. And he's, he moves through lines of authority. And we do have freedom in it to move in the Spirit, but there's order. I, uh, Finney would talk about his greatest revivals. He said the best ones were, were the ones where everything was done decently in, in order. Paul wrote to the Corinthians who, who had come out of paganism, had come out of just like a land of Egypt, that kind of thing, had gotten saved, and now their lives are starting to, to, to become fruitful, and now they have the Holy Spirit, but there's chaos in their meetings. There's things that are being prophesied and things that are being done. There are people interrupting each other, people mistreating each other, the people who are vaunting themselves. So he wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, he says, God is not the author of that. He's not the author of confusion. There's just no way he's behind it. You, you, you just don't know him. He's, he's the God of order. He's the God of peace. They just misread God. And it happens today. Verse 40, he says, let everything, let all things be done decently and in order. Now, I'm preaching this today, and we don't have an issue, so I'm not shooting for any issue at all. We actually have good order, but it's at risk, and at times, somebody's going to come, something's going to happen, and they're going to say, why can't we just do whatever, we, why, why, who made you the boss over me? That's going to be heard in this place. Well, the reason, the reason we just don't allow just everything to happen is we believe that he's a God of order. You can say, well, you're the guy holding the mic. No wonder you believe that. Well, I believed this when I first met Jesus. I believed this when I, when I wasn't a pastor, before I was even a deacon or any of that. I just believed, I believed the Bible. And you listen, everything I'm saying and some of the stuff I'll teach this morning just sounds so old-fashioned, just sounds antiquated and... Old, like old school, old thought. Who thinks this way? Well, I think we need to get back to the Bible. That's the only thing that makes sense. And the people who are opposed to any kind of order, they just see it as, as, as old kind of thinking. But it's not. 
Even the angels have order. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we do wrestle with principalities, powers, rulers of darkness. He's describing a hierarchy. He's describing order even among fallen spirits. Now, I want to teach you this today. And um, not because anything I'm teaching is new. It's not new to you, I'm sure. But it's a good reminder. Can we do this today? Can we have a reminder? <clears throat> Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says, I taught among you, I was with you, and I taught you the ordinances of God. They're not old rules, it's a, but it's an order of how to live. And he said, he said the, uh, the head, oh, oh, oh. Some of these don't work very well. He described an order, and he said, uh, the head of Christ is God. And so, but Jesus there, he says, the head of the husband is Christ. The head of the wife is the husband. He didn't describe children, but he does in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 where he's talking about uh, the order of the home. He mentions the children. He actually gets into employers and employees. How you, treat, how you relate to your boss is really important to God. How you treat your employees, how much you even pay them, all of that is noted by God. I mean, it's huge. I happen to work among a lot of Mennonite families, so these represent the kids. And there's always one that's a little different. So this is the order that God has established. And it looks so old-fashioned. But I'll tell you, nothing made more sense to me. When I saw this, I'm a young believer. I'm reading the 1 Corinthians 11. And I know that God's not into hats and hair. And I couldn't figure it out. But he began to show me that this is the ordinances of God that he's prescribing. It's a prescribed order. And when it gets out of order... You know, if you, if you take the husband and you move him over here, he's out of order, and your home can be affected by evil spirits and the angels who are sticklers for order. I mean, when the children of Israel were leaving Egypt, he, uh, the Lord said, tell Moses, you better tell the people to obey these angels, especially the angel of the Lord, because he has no forgiveness. He, is, he cannot forgive. He's a stickler for the rules and how things should be done. But if the husband just says, well, I'll advocate my position, I'll just leave. Well, there's, there's things that can affect your home, angelic beings that, that, are, that are negative, that can affect your wife or mental well-being, affect your kids. There's some people whose lives are out of order, their home is out of order, and it's like their house is haunted because it is. It affects their health, affects their finances, affects the spiritual protection of their home. Strange things happen, crazy things happen that shouldn't normally happen. And it's not because God's doing it. It's because there's a breach in the order that he has established. This guy here, he doesn't know it, but it says in Proverbs that if a husband neglects his role and abandons his, abandons his responsibilities, it's like a hen who leaves her nest 
and leaves the eggs to whatever happens to them, whoever steps on them, whatever insects want to get to them, any kind of critter can have them. It's like abandoning the eggs. It's, it's, it's serious. Or you can do this. You can say, well, uh, I don't abandon my role, but I don't, I don't necessarily believe in this old-fashioned concept, and so my wife runs the family, and this is him. Paul said, if, if you do this, he says, it's because you disrespect Jesus. Because he's the head of the house. He's the one that has set this thing up, and it's almost like you're disrespecting him. Well, someone says, well, we don't quite live that way. We, 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 we believe in co-authority, co that, you know, that we have equal authority. That's not what God's word says either. He's established this right from, right from Adam and Eve. He's created, he's created even in the order of, of, of how all mankind was to flow by the way he created Adam first and Eve second. Eve with the purpose of serving her husband. I mean, it was all the way God designed it. It sounds old-fashioned, but when you subscribe to it, it actually brings peace and order to your life. You can change this in a lot of different ways, but it won't work. There's a pattern there's an order, the ordinances of God. Let's change this up. Um, Ephesians 5 is describing the order of God and describing how children are to relate to their parents, parents are to relate to the children, husbands the way they to treat their wives, wives the way they're supposed to relate to their husbands. It's a massive section of scripture. He's writing it to Gentiles who are coming out of paganism and they need, they need God's word to cleanse them and to give them a sense of order. So he's writing it to pagans, ex-pagans. He's writing about the family, but then he stops. He says, you know, this is a great mystery. I'm writing about the family, but really I'm writing about church. Because God's only created two institutions. The first one was marriage, the family. The second one was church. He's only created two. Both of them are under attack. Both of them, the enemy hates both of them because they meant so much to God. The enemy hates marriage. He hates church. You got to watch what you hate. You have to love what God loves and hate what God hates. If you ever get those two things mixed up, you're in trouble. So he's established this, this order and we need to say yes and amen to it. Even if we don't fully understand it, when we're in trouble, when, we're, when, we're, when life isn't making sense, it's not working, you got something to come back to. you got something to, to draw from. The institution of marriage is under attack, the institution of the church, primarily in one place, in the area of authority. If you say, uh, you know, that there's an order for your home and that you're the head of the home and... Uh, you know, your wife has a place, your children have a place, and how they treat you, it, it will be mocked. People will say, you're old-fashioned. I mean, that's crazy the way to live. That's not modern thinking. That's not the way you should be thinking. It, it just looks bad. But it's the only thing that's right. Everything gets twisted. When I first read this, it was the my life began to take shape. 
God began to move in my marriage, move in my, in my life, moved uh, spiritual protection, spiritual provision. I started hearing from God differently because I aligned myself with his order. But, you know, especially in today's world, I mean, this just sounds like so old-fashioned, so dysfunctional, so archaic. Plus, we all know where, where everyone in authority has, has abused their authority. We know where every judge, you know, you read about it almost every day, or government officials, or politicians, or pastors, or preachers, or policemen abuse their authority. And they do. There's no denying it. They do. The enemy wants to corrupt these lines of authority because he'll get you to resist the ordinance of God. He'll get you to reject what God's established because some pastor one time violated the what's right and was abused in the, as authority. They just announced, I think, two weeks ago that 660, uh, uh, more than half a million people in France have been abused by clergy. I don't think that number is true. I think it's much, much higher. But when you read that and you think these are the people who are being entrusted with our kids and then they abuse our kids, it's mind-blowing. And so the first thing you do is then say, we don't want anything to do with authority. We don't want anything to do with anything that looks hierarchical because there might be abuse in it. No, we need this to correct the system. We need this to get back to God. But does it does abuse to happen? Is there is there uh, parental abuse? Do pa do do fathers abuse their kids and overspank them? Absolutely. It's wrong. It's horrible. I meet people who can hardly walk with the Lord or have any sense of the father-God relationship because of the way they're over-disciplined as children. But it doesn't mean we throw out the system. We need something to keep coming back to. We need something that God prescribed. And he did this. Now let's watch this. I'd written this up and shown you how the home should work. Let's talk about church for a few minutes. So God made Jesus the head of the church. And almost both Testaments, but certainly all through the New Testament, Jesus is called the head of the church. He's in charge of it. God gave it to him. It's Jesus' church because God gave it to him. <clears throat> and God wants to, to speak. Jesus, on the other hand, he ordains who's going to be pastor, preacher, prophet, apostle, evangelist. He gives what he is, and he establishes lines of authority in order to serve the body and help the body be all that it can be. But it's Jesus. All of it comes from Jesus. It doesn't come directly from God. It comes from Jesus. <clears throat> So an example of this is God had a revelation, and, excuse me, this revelation one, it says he gave that revelation to Jesus. Why? Because he's the head of the church. Jesus gave the revelation to John. John, on the other hand, he wrote to the seven angels of the seven churches. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah. And there's always one that's a little wonky. These are not angels in heaven. These are, 
These are the pastors of the churches. He doesn't use the word pastor because not all of them are pastors. Some of them are, have different functions. But it's the word messenger. Besides, you don't need, God doesn't need to give a revelation to Jesus, and Jesus gives it to John, and John gives it to angels, when the angels are always before the face of the Father. He doesn't need to do that. He can speak to them face to face. This is what it says in Revelation 1. And Jesus began to speak to John. John wrote the letters out. And then the, these letters were read to the people on Sunday when they gathered. It's how God speaks. And there's lots of other places in the Bible that if I had time, I could take you through that shows that God speaks this way. He didn't just speak directly to the people. He spoke through a line of authority. And he's correcting the church. He says, my eyes are on fire. I see everything. I hear everything. I know what's happening in your, in your church. And so he wanted it corrected. And the way to correct it is to use lines of authority to bring about repentance. Now let's do this. There's a thing called nurture. Nurture is nutrition. It's how we grow. And it says all nurture comes from the head. All nurture. The way God feeds us is through the head. Uh, let me just say it this way. Uh, in terms of look, just looking back in this whole crazy COVID period, I didn't know how to navigate COVID. I'd never been to COVID before. And it's a, it's a crazy time. Nothing like it's ever happened. But Jesus would wake me up in the night and give me words and messages to bring comfort and perspective so that we can walk this thing out together. I'm not that wise. I didn't come up with this. I didn't have a list of sermons I could dust off and bring out for COVID. It came, it came in the form, it's nurture, but it's coming from Jesus. It's ultimately, ultimately, it's all coming from the Father, but it comes through Jesus. So when God wanted to speak to me, to speak to you, he spoke through Jesus, and it came, and I was able to share that with you. I think that's the reason our church has done so well during COVID is because of Jesus, not because of me. Nurture, direction, correction, provision, protection. All of it, all the stuff he provided for the children of Israel in the, in the wilderness is all that he, the same stuff that he wants to provide now. But the way he does it, the way the, our, our king does it, he's made Jesus our king. It all flows through Jesus that the Father may be glorified. And it comes down and it flows on us. Protection, provision, all of it. Life, spiritual life, a move of the Spirit. We need a move of the Spirit, and we could use a move of the Spirit these days. If we pray to God for a move of the Spirit, Jesus will do something to stir things up down here in a way that we start having more spiritual life. It doesn't come from me, but I am responsible because of my position that can determine whether those things can happen or not. And so we need to pray. I think we need to pray these days. We need a fresh move of the Spirit in this place. Amen? I think we do. 
everything comes through Jesus, from the Father, through Jesus, and it's called nurture. You know, this is, I call this the flow. We need to get under the flow. You need to relate to authority properly, both in your home and in the church and, and even in our government. We need, our government is broken. It's the, it's the worst condition I've ever seen government in. But we don't throw government out. We change the people. We change, we vote them out. We do other things that make sure that things get changed. We have power to make things change. But we gotta watch our mouth. We gotta watch the way we relate. We gotta watch it. Because the system is actually from God. Are you under the flow? You can tell because there's spiritual life that flows from the head. And dads, you'll never lack for direction for your kids food to give them. You don't just sit down and get an old King James Bible and say, okay, kids, let's sit down and I'm going to read you Ezekiel, last four chapters, and this is our devotion for the week. You'll lose them. But if you say, Jesus, give me something to feed my children spiritually so that they come alive, He'll, you'll never fail. You'll never lack anything. You'd be amazed how the flow opens up. If you say, I want to minister to my wife, I She's, she's got worries and anxieties. Jesus, give me something. To, give me a word that will put that to rest of my wife. My wife had health issues, <clears throat> and uh, she had a sciatica a problem that just didn't seem to go away. I just went to the church that we were renting the Baptist church at the time. I just went down there, and, and, and I went in that little library, and I went in there, and, and I said, Jesus, I'm here because I'm the head of my house. That was my authority. It wasn't as a man of God. It wasn't as a pastor. It wasn't even as a child of God. I, I stood in that library, and I said, I'm here because I'm the head of my house. And my wife is sick, and we can't figure it out. She's been to all the specials. She's done all that stuff. And as I watched, it wasn't progressively getting better. It was getting worse. I went to Jesus. I, I'm here as, as her head. Speak to me. Give me the solution. Now, this is not an exaggeration. This is the absolute truth. I'm standing in the library, and I'd looked over the bookshelf before. There weren't two books that I would have taken home. It was just a lot of wood. And so as, as I'm standing there, I'm standing facing the shelf, and I look, and there's this, uh, the spine of a book, and I just reached out, put my finger on it, and I pulled it out. The back of the book said, if you have a problem with sciatica, I didn't even know how to spell sciatica. And there it is, staring at me. Don't get an operation, read this book. You got a problem with a bad back? And it was written by Dr. John Sarnos, who happened to be the leading back expert in America at the time. I, I pulled the answer off the shelf. The answer in the book says it's not physical, it's spiritual, it's emotional. You can have stuff happening in you, deep, deep emotions that can affect your nerves and affect your sciatica, affect your back, affect your shoulder. I took this home because I knew Jesus. The Father through Jesus had given me direction for my wife to, get, to walk this thing out. It was the beginning of the end. She never took any more medicine to get out of it. She didn't have an operation. 
she dealt with the deeper issues that were working in her life at that point in time, and the sciatica just simply went away. And pain, pain so bad she couldn't sit down. She couldn't lay down. The only relief she has when she stood, well, how long can you stand? I don't tell that without her permission. I have permission to share that. But my point is, this isn't about sciatica. The point is, is you have authority with God because of your position in God. We need wisdom to run this church. This church is growing. All kinds of stuff is happening here. We need to tap into Jesus. We need to hear from the head to know how to navigate this thing. Is this helpful? You probably already know it all. I, I'm sure you do. But I need to be reminded of it even today, don't you? Yeah, let's stand together. Why don't we just begin with a very simple prayer? If you felt like the Lord was speaking to you and giving you vision today, why don't you thank him for it? Thank him for it. Say, Lord, thank you for reminding me. Thank you for inspiring me afresh. I want to relate to my dad. I want to relate to my husband differently. I want to treat my wife differently. I want to treat my kids differently. God, help me. I want to treat my boss differently at work. I want to treat my employees differently at work. It all means something to Jesus. Jesus, there isn't a prayer that we can pray right now that would change all the stuff that happens in our lives, our finances and our marriages. But we reaffirm, we choose this day to live according to your ways, according to your word. We want our life to be aligned with your ordinances so that our lives make sense. Our lives are fruitful. God, help us. Help us to do this in the name of Jesus. Is that your prayer? If it's your prayer, you can say amen, and he'll respond to you just as if you prayed that prayer. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.